Well, good morning. Oh, it's so good to have you here uh, this morning at the chapel at Warren Valley. For those of you that are here, um, welcome. Uh, there are still people there in the, in the narthex. They're heading in, so welcome uh, to all of you. And for those that are sitting here, it's good to have you here this morning. For those of you that are joining us by uh, online, we welcome you as well. It's a beautiful day. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let's, let us rejoice and be glad in it. Uh, I would encourage you, you probably, for those of you that were here in the sanctuary, you probably received a sheet. It will list out a number of the things that are going on here at the church. I would encourage you to grab those and it will let you know of some of the offerings that are happening. As well, every week, uh, Christina puts out an email to our congregation. If you are are not on the email list, can I strongly encourage you to do so? Prayer requests come through that email line. Uh, announcements come through that email line. If you would like to be on that email chain, what I would encourage you to do is when we leave the sanctuary today, go out to the right. There's a welcome center right there. Just let them know that you want to be on the weekly announcements email list, and uh, she will make sure that she takes care of that for you. Um, I can't believe we're talking about Christmas already, um, but Operation Christmas Child uh, it, boxes are out there. You'll see a display out there. So if you want to be part of that, that would be great. There are some children in this world that struggle, and they do not have some of those opportunities that you and I have. And those little small gifts, which seem very small to us, are significant to them. So I would encourage you to um, be involved in that. Um, let me just look. There's some studies that are there on the list. I won't go through those studies. Let me just give a couple of praise reports here. It looks like we are um, offering praise for uh, Dave's surgery. Um, Nita Dean was sharing about her son, uh, so we're praising uh, for him. We do have some prayer requests that are there as well. Uh, Karen Alpaul and um, Pastor Bill Slack of River of Life. Um, I think that's in Phillipsburg, uh, diagnosed with cancer. So we we pray for that. And we want to continue to pray for the Monahans and the, uh, their children as they are battling. The, they are strong, um, but they are battling as well. And uh, we want to continue to pray for Rita. I'm not sure what the update is on Rita. Any new update? She's home and she's home and she's doing well. Praise the Lord. Praise God. So uh, she's still on a road to the recovery, but we're thankful that she's home. And we want to continue to pray for Diana Kelly and Linda Matthews as well. So, yes, I'm sorry. You have an amazing praise. Sure. Fran. Wow. So those of you that are online, you probably couldn't hear that. And maybe some of you in the sanctuary couldn't hear that. But uh, Tony, right? Uh, Tony, um, Fran Pilch's brother, um, has been struggling with cancer. And he had been going through a lot of treatment. It was, what you say, six weeks of treatment? Six weeks of treatment. And uh, just um, recently, he was uh, declared cancer-free. Um, so we are praising God for that. Uh, so... 
I want to go to God in prayer right now. I want you to think about this passage. I just shared this in my study. I love this passage from Hebrews chapter 4, um, verse 16. It goes this way. Oh, actually, let me go back to verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, confession, for we do not have a high priest that is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I love that passage. Remind yourself that you have a God who knows and can sympathize with you. Let's pray. So Father, uh, there are a lot of prayer requests on this list. Um, there are requests that are here in this congregation that, you, that we do not know about, but you do. I thank you for every one of them. I thank you that there is um, every person in this congregation you know. You know every person in this world because you created them. Father, you know every struggle. You know every difficulty. You know every trial. You know every trouble. I thank you that you're an amazing God and you are creating beauty out of the midst of the ashes. I praise you for the fact that you're a caring and compassionate God. I praise you for the fact that you are the great deliverer. You've delivered us from this present evil darkness and you're taking us to eternal light. I praise you for the fact that you are an everlasting God and you are faithful and true. I praise you for your grace and your gospel. Lord, I praise you. I thank you that the problems that we see here on this list or the problems that are in our lives are nothing in comparison to you. So, Lord, I pray that as Paul, he says that these things are light and momentary. It doesn't feel that way, Lord. I'll be honest with you. At times, it doesn't feel that way. But I pray that you would help us to see the problems that we have in light of eternity, eternal glory, and we praise you. Lord, today, as we, as we sing, help us to sing well of your Son and sing well of gospel grace. I pray that as we pray today, Father, that we would be praying to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one that holds everything in the palm of your hands. Lord, as we hear your word preached, I pray for my brother as he preaches that he would preach with your boldness and your strength. And I pray that we would have ears to hear, Father. And Lord, I pray that as we walk out of here today, I pray that we would apply everything that we've heard to reflect your glory to a world that desperately needs you. In Jesus' matchless, holy, and powerful name we pray. Amen. I'll bless your name, O oh God, Day that I'm awake from into setting sun, your greatness I proclaim. Your glory far exceeds all human thought. So with each breath I'll bless your name, O oh God. Your name will be children yet to come 
as generations sing of wonders you have done. Your strong and mighty deeds are always near. Oh God, most high, your name will be Upon it, name of thy redeeming. 
fail us. Hallelujah. He will never fail us. He is the mountain mover. Hallelujah. If you have a problem, he will come to him because what? The veil has been ripped and the Holy of Holies is open and we can boldly come to the throne of God. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we know, Lord, we are in this tumultuous and chaotic world, Lord God, but within you, Lord God, in your presence, Lord, we have a foundation, Lord God. Will you give us peace, mercy, grace, Lord God? You have instructed us, Lord, on how and how to be like you, Lord. Oh, Lord, let us take that into ourselves, Lord God. Let us just be in your presence at all times, Lord God. Lord, I pray, Father, that you would bless uh, um, uh, our speaker. (laughs) I forget it. Pastor Tim, thank you. (laughs) I'm thinking, Douglas? No. Praise the Lord. Uh, 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 I pray for our, our speaker, Lord. I pray that his word would fall in our hearts and we would think about it, Lord, this week. Lord God, as we go through our, 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 our week, Father, we thank you for such grace and mercy, Lord God. We thank you for this church. We thank you for everyone who's here. Bless them in Jesus' name. And we're going to have a reading of Jude chapter, uh, actually there's only one chapter. <laughs> Uh, 5 through 16. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their position of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he had kept in darkness bound with everlasting chains of judgment. On the great day, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal life. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, an ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you, yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the things that they do understand by instinct, as irrational, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them, they have taken away of Cain, they've taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed by Korah's rebellion. And these people are blemishes at your own love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualms. Shepherds who feed only on themselves, they are clouds without rains. 
without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all their ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness. And all of their defiant words, ungodly, ungodly sinners, have spoken against them. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. Okay, you may be seated, and we can let the children be dismissed for junior church. Uh, Grateful to see each of you here. Just a reminder that we start at 1030. Um, That's not a rebuke to anyone in particular, okay? But just an encouragement, uh, leave your house 10 minutes earlier, okay? And uh, it's just such a powerful thing to be able to worship God together, and if we come with our hearts ready, I understand every morning. There's all different things that can happen, especially for those of you that have kids. But just want to give you that encouragement, okay, that it'd be great if when we, this is like, you know, family dinner, when we all gather and start together, it's better than we're separate, okay? So I just want to give you that as an encouragement. We also want to welcome Paisley Reidiger. Can you just raise your hand there, mommy? All right. She's got a little baby under that blanket, and it's uh, her first time here? All right. I hope she's enjoying it. All right. So, (laughs) there are portions of Scripture that uh, will prove whether or not you believe in preaching the whole counsel of God. I did a little research around, and I realized this is a text that a lot of pastors avoid. Because it it is a book that deals with uncomfortable things that may make you squirm a little bit, may make you a little queasy or uneasy emotionally as you hear them, but I think it is critical that we understand uh, the whole counsel of God, and that, uh, so the text today is a text that really serves as much more of a warning than it is an encouragement, although it ends with a thought that is encouraging at many levels. So I want to work through this text. Before I do that, I I want to say this about my own background. Um, I was raised in a really, what I would say was a very good church. I was nurtured on truth. I was taught truth uh, from about six years old on when my parents came to faith in Christ and believed that we need to be part of a Bible-preaching church where the truth of God's Word was handled carefully and faithfully. Uh, it was a Baptist church. It was conservative. It was independent. It was fundamental, and sometimes the word militant got thrown around, okay? And in our day, when you hear that word, there's kind of a, whoo, <laughs> I don't do that as well as Doug, but, <laughs> but there's kind of this, there's a response to that word. Is there any ground upon which we can make the observation that the church of Christ is to be militant at some in some sense, or at some level. 
Okay, and I think the passage of Scripture that Doug talked about last week clearly gives us a command. Now, I understand that the idea of militant is a loaded word, because you start thinking of protesters on the street. Okay, I'm not using the word in that sense. I personally am not a fan of any protest. Okay, just I don't think it's the best way to advance the cause of Christ, because it is so prone to extremes and misunderstandings that distort the message that the gospel calls us to proclaim. Okay, so I'm just telling you, if you, if you are in favor of that, uh, you know, God bless you, uh, I will not be joining you. Okay, I think we fight the battle in a different way. I think that we stand for truth and love others to the glory of God, and that is how we respond to a world that is increasingly broken. And in verse 3, as Doug talked about last week, Jude speaks of his desire to write a discourse about the glorious gospel as a means of encouragement, but he, 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 he digresses from that and says, I felt compelled to write to you and to urge you to contend for the faith that was once entrusted to the saints. So there is there a clear call to take your stand. This idea of militants means to hold your line. It's not talking about going out and ravaging people, destroying people. That's not the call of the church. The call of the church is to proclaim the truth, to stand on that truth unflinching. Okay, and that is not always easy in a relativistic culture that wants to say nothing really matters. We're called to stand. We're called to believe that there is truth that is worthy of protection. And that is the call of this text, to earnestly contend for the faith. And that the, the faith is a body of truth about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for us. And how he can set you free from all brokenness and shame in your life. That's the message that we're called to contend. And when you understand the gospel, there is nothing in your life that is more worthy of you standing and holding your ground than the glorious good news of Jesus Christ that we have just sung about so powerfully and so beautifully. It is the faith once delivered. It is not to be added to. We don't need new revelation from God. We need to understand what God has said. So it is a body of truth that Paul says is of first importance that Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again on the third day to prove that he can forgive you and change your life forever. A body of truth that we are called not to edit, not, not to, to dumb down, not to smooth out, but to proclaim as it stands. And then in this text, Judah's saying, you need to earnestly contend for that. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, he said, Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith. Paul is not talking about taking up a sword other than the word of God. So he calls Timothy to stand his ground. And that's more this, the tone of this idea of militants. If you're familiar with the Reformation that took place in the Catholic Church in the 1500s, the key figure of that movement was a man named Martin Luther. Not a perfect man. Yes, you can point out flaws in his life. But he, he, he made this very simple proclamation. This is the gospel of Christ. That salvation is by grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. And he made that statement in the face of threats of death. And here's the three words that he said. He said, here I stand. 
and that stand that he took brought about a reformation of the church, pulling it out of darkness and brokenness and indulgences and freed people to again to know and to understand the glorious truth once delivered to the saints. So throughout history, throughout the first century, there is this need to stand. But as I make that point, I am mindful of one text in Philippians chapter 3. This is a text that changed my personal life and my approach to ministry and my approach and understanding of what it means to stand your ground. In Philippians 3, Paul is talking about those that were distorting the gospel and saying that that God's grace kind of gives you full freedom and liberty because no matter what you do, God will forgive you. And so the grace of God became a, a license to do whatever you want because God is so forgiving. Folks, let me tell you this. That is a is one of the most perhaps the most uh, reckless perversion of the gospel. Because it says that Christ can't change you, that he can't free you, that he can't liberate you. Yes, he can forgive you, but he's kind of soft. And I'm here to say this morning, he is not soft. He is holy. And one day he is coming to judge the living and the dead. And he has called us to stand for his truth. But when Paul talks about standing against them, at the end of that discourse, pointing out the flaws and the errors that are present, he, tells, he says this, gives a description, and he ends by saying this, I tell you with tears that they are enemies of the cross. And folks, I'm going to tell you something. Most people that go out and carry a sign lack the tears that the apostle Paul shed. And to me, that is a shame. Whenever our militants turns to ugliness, it's not militant in the sense that God's word is talking about. It is this conviction that there are truths that I am willing to die for, to shed blood for. But we are not called to go out and to fight against. We are called to hold our ground, to stand, proclaiming the truth of the gospel. And there's a song that we sing sometimes called, Oh Church Arise. And it kind of captures this, this tone. It says, with shield of faith and belt of truth, we stand against the devil's lies, an army bold, whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness. I think that so beautifully hits the nail on the head. Our call to war, to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. And with the sword that makes the wounded whole, we will fight with faith, and valor. Folks, the truth of God's word and the fullness of the gospel that we are called to contend for can change people's lives. And the reason that Paul picks up this this theme is because there is a tendency on the part of the church of Christ to want to blend in, to be a chameleon spiritually. And when we do that, we never help the world around us. Why the call to contend? Verse 4 gives you the answer. Certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. Jude is conscious of the fact that in the context of the church of Christ, there are some at times, particularly at that time in a pointed way, that have slipped in saying truth is not that important. Truth is not worth standing for. And there is freedom in Christ that allows all kinds of things that Scripture clearly speaks against. And so as Jude writes this letter, he is conscious that there are those that are tearing down, 
And he gives a call here to expose the enemies of the gospel of Christ. On six occasions in this text, he will use these kind of pronouns, these people. Okay, six times. He will back up and say, those that have slipped in in this text are repeatedly called these people. And if you you look through verse 8, 10, 11, 12, 16, and 19, you'll see that he references the object of the discussion. So that Jude is not shy about calling out what needs to be called out. Okay, so please understand, when I say that we are called to stand our ground, to do it in love... It does not mean that we lack conviction and an understanding of truth. Okay, so that, that he, he says certain ones have crept in, they are stealthy, they infiltrate, they distort God's grace and turn it into license to do whatever you want. There is a threat in the context of church life that is very possible. And it is to that issue that Jude addresses this letter. So look at verse 5 then. He says, though you already know this, so he's going to, he's saying this is something that people are aware of, but he says, I want to remind you. So what he's going to do is give us eight analogies to the Old Testament storyline. Okay, he's going to appeal to the Old Testament on eight occasions by picking up specific circumstances or individuals, using them as a help to understand what this departure is, this tactic is, this stealthy sneaking in and this degradation. He wants you to understand it. Eight times he's going to point his finger at them and say these people. Okay, so there is a place in the context of church life for us to say that this or that or this person is off base. Okay, and that we as leaders in the church have an obligation to make that kind of a proclamation and stand from time to time. It's not a, it's not a justification of ugliness, it's with tears, but it is an essential call to cling to truth. So Paul says, I write to remind you by way of familiar accounts. Now one of the problems that is present in the church today as we go through a text like this. We're gonna look at eight Old Testament analogies. Sadly, many of us will say, Korah who? Cain who? Balaam who? Okay, now what I wanna tell you is that as I go through this today, I wanna give you a challenge to become people who read God's word and spend time in context where they hear God's word, because the church today has a problem. The problem is called biblical illiteracy. Most people don't know the Bible storyline, and if you don't, this text is going to strongly imply that you are, by virtue of that ignorance, vulnerable to the slipping in. Okay? That's important that you understand that. So I'm going to, as we go through this, be honest with yourself. If you say, huh, I've never heard of that name. Jude is citing these names with little context and little data because there's an assumption as Jude speaks and writes, right? What's the assumption? That they already know who these eight people are or these eight groups of people are as they work through this storyline. So 
The strategy that the text encourages is this. Realize the danger that is present, stand faithful, and trust God with the outcomes. Okay, realize the danger that is present, stand firm, and trust, God's, trust God with the outcome. So first of all, the danger of rejecting God's authority. Now, verse four makes it very clear that these people are denying the authorities, particularly the moral authority of God's word. And he's going to talk about the danger of rejecting God's authority in our lives. He's going to do three appeals to historical precedent. So verse five is the first one. I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who do not believe. So if you think back in the Old Testament storyline, the nation of Israel is delivered by the power of God. They, be, they are the object of his, of his affection, and they are in the exodus brought out of bondage. It's a picture of salvation. Now, it doesn't mean that every Jew in the nation of Israel at that time was a faithful, devoted follower of Christ. But they experienced something jointly or corporately as a group. And that was the affection of God that saw their pain, that led God to raise up a man like Moses to lead them out of Egypt by showing them many signs and wonders. And when they come across their first obstacle at the Red Sea, God miraculously delivers them. They saw this. There was a rock that God used to bring water in a dry and arid land to supply their needs. They saw all of that. But when they got to the boundary of the land of Canaan where God had promised to bring them, what did they do? They balked. God said, okay, we're ready to go in. Some raised doubts about the possibility that God could actually defeat the enemy that existed, and so the people rebelled. And so the book of uh, Hebrews asked the question, who is it that rebelled? And here's what it says. All those who heard the voice of God who saw the exodus, who were saved at the Red Sea, who saw water coming from the rock, who were guided by the cloud through the wilderness, they are the ones that saw the work of God and balked. They stopped living by faith. And the Bible tells us that God said to them, okay, for 40 years you're going to wander in the wilderness. And this whole generation that was delivered through the exodus will die off. This is the judgment of God. But God will then follow that with taking his people into the land of Canaan, and to the fulfillment of his promise. So Israel failed to trust, though they were greatly blessed, and a whole generation was scattered in the wilderness. The second illustration is verse 6. He says, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So the idea of the great day, we talked about at the end of Peter, right? The day of the Lord, the day when God's justice comes. And what does he allude to? First, he alludes to Israel. Secondly, he alludes to the angels. These are angels that rebelled, who had a privileged status, who lived in God's presence, but were proud and arrogant, likely seduced by Satan, and wanted more. So how did God respond to that? The text tells us that they, when they abandoned their proper dwelling, their proper position, their understood place, he has kept them in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So here's what you see. You see rebellion 
and a verdict from God. With the nation of Israel, you see it with the angels. And then thirdly, you see it with reckless Sodom. Look at verse 7. And by the way, this, it's very likely that the idea of Sodom and sodomy are some of the most recognizable words from the Old Testament in the world that we live in, right? That's something you hear bantied about in a lot of uh, legal settings, okay? Because it becomes a definition of certain types of behavior. That comes from this era, from this city of Sodom and Gomorrah, which was reckless. And what the text tells us is, that they gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. Now, here's what I want you to realize. There were those in the church, verses 3 and 4, who were saying, you can do whatever you want, and it's fine because God's grace will cover you. You won't be judged. But it becomes clear in the text as you move forward that when Sodom and Gomorrah did that, God extended grace, if there's 50, if there's 40, if there's 30 who love and are faithful to God, I'll spare the whole city. But the end result of God's analysis of Sodom and Gomorrah was that there were none righteous. He drags out Lot, one of his spiritual sons, with his family and rains down destruction on that city. And the cause of that judgment was clearly sexual perversion and Ezekiel will identify the topic of greed. Why does he cite these three examples? Okay, what's true in each case? There is a rebellion against the divine design of humanity and against God himself, and there is a verdict that comes from God. Okay, so the, the, the theme that starts to emerge is that these stand as sobering examples. End of verse seven, look what it says. They serve as an example of those who suffered the punishment of eternal fire. Right, now that is a sobering statement. What it means is this. God is not successfully ignored. And at some point, there is this need for divine judgment from a just and holy God. And these three categories serve as illustrations and reminders of that. So it's writing to the church, obviously, to caution them that they don't buy into this way of compromise, that they don't buy into this way of sacrificing truth for personal pleasure, because God will stand against it. So that's the rejection of God's authority. I want to say this to you this morning. In this text, there is this overt rejection or rebellion against God's authority. Okay, that, that becomes very clear. Okay, this is not a text that is going after someone who is struggling with doubt. Okay, and I just want to say that as a clarification. If you're here this morning, you're saying, well, I have, I have questions. I have sincere doubts at times about certain things. God knows your heart. These illustrations are of an overt rejection in order to gain freedom in one's life. That's what happened in Sodom. There's a rejection of moral absolutes as designed by God and throwing oneself into a life of sensuality for one's own destruction. That's, that's what clearly is being addressed, addressed here. Okay? Now, look at verses 8 through 11, which gives us some illustration of what's happening in verses 
5 through 7. So out of these three illustrations, he says this. In the very same way. So now he's going to take the illustrations that he's given and apply them to specific situations that were present in the church. Okay, so he talks about these. Says that God definitively acted in justice. And within the church, there are some that are acting in the same way. They're marching down the same road. They pose the same threat and deserve the judgment of God. Verse 8 says this, in the same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. Okay, so within the church, there are these people, and what does he say? They pollute their own bodies. That is that they recklessly harm themselves because the immoral person always sins against himself. This idea of polluting one's own body is interesting to me because when you read Romans chapter one and you find this perversion in the realm of sexuality, the text, I believe it's uh, uh, verse 27, it lays out a path. They, it says they end up suffering in their own body the penalty for the choices that they are making. And to me, that's a fascinating statement. Because we live in an age that wants to say that sexuality and the experience thereof is purely biological. So go do whatever you want to do. It won't damage you. It won't harm you in any way. But Romans makes the argument very clear that a life of sensuality, a life of, uh, of, of, of looking at things you shouldn't look at and, and experiencing sexuality outside of the God-given boundaries ultimately does damage to the individual. And Romans 1 lays that, I think, in the most stark fashion. They pollute their own bodies. They suffer in their own body the penalty. They reject authority. And that is, the idea of that is it is the constraints of truth. They just, they just throw it off, right? Don't, don't tell me what to do, right? If you raise children, you dealt with a little bit of this, okay? They, they don't like you exercising your authority. And there's a little bit of this idea of rebellion in all of us. So you be careful when you're addressing issues that are real in the culture and in the church, that you never fully take yourself out of that falling group of people. That you understand that there is brokenness in your own life. That will cause you to respond with tears. Okay? They pollute their own bodies. They reject authority. Throw off the constraints of truth. And it's fascinating what he says next. He says, they ridicule and belittle in careless and reckless ways. They heap abuse, the end of verse 8 says, on celestial beings. And then it gives you this really interesting parenthetical observation. Okay? So these leaders in the church, these people who are infiltrating, may not yet be leaders, but they're sliding in, are objects of God's wrath. They, they, God has his eye on them, and they have this characteristic of polluting, of rejecting authority, and of ridiculing and belittling the supernatural realm. They don't take it seriously. It's a joke to them. It's a snicker issue to them. Look what verse 9 says. But even the archangel Michael, who is the only named angel and one particularly of some degree of high rank, apart, with, apart from Lucifer, 
okay? Even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses. Now, I don't have time to get into all of what this means, okay? But we know in the book of Exodus that God said to Israel, I'm going to take care of burying Moses. The ministering spirits of God are angels according to Hebrews chapter 1. And so it's likely that there is this, this responsibility in the part of Michael to take care of the body of Moses. Apparently there was a dispute over that, perhaps Satan thinking in some way he could fool people by doing something with the body of Moses. And in the middle of this debate, the text makes an interesting statement. It observes that Michael is not flippant when he deals with Satan, but instead, what does he say to him? Look what it says. Even Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to contemn him for slander, for his blasphemy, but said, God will deal with it. The Lord rebuke you. Isn't that a fascinating thing? Because presumably Michael the archangel had access to the very presence of God, and when he gets into a battle with Satan... He puts that into the hands of God. And I think that becomes a warning for us as the church. There are certain, if you go out and fight every battle, you will be exhausted. All right? And what this text is calling us to do is at certain times, we have to say, that is in God's hands. And that's what Michael the archangel does. And I think it's powerful. He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't condemn him. He says, the Lord deal with you. The Lord rebuke you. And I think there's a lot of insight and wisdom in that. Verse 10, he picks it up again and he says, but these people, again, you see that identifier, this is the false leaders in the church. They slander whatever they do not understand and the very things they do by instinct as irrational beings will destroy them. So what do they do? They boldly reject authority and they follow their instincts. This is what they're encouraging. Express yourself, do whatever you want, be true to yourself. But when they follow their instincts without appropriate God-given moral boundaries, they're doing what feels good, but this text makes an interesting observation. In their freedom, they savage their souls. Okay, when people... I mean, I, I said this to the teenagers on, on, uh, on Wednesday night at youth group. I said, how many of you would like to go to a school where there are no rules and everybody can do whatever they want? Okay? And every one of them said, absolutely not. I would be terrified. Okay? Why? We need boundaries. And this is a group of people who are saying, you do whatever you want. Does that sound like the world we live in? Express yourself in whatever way you want. Sexually, do whatever you want. Call yourself whatever you want to call yourself. Thinking that there will be no lasting consequence for that. But what's this text say? When we do by instinct, without moral boundaries, we end up savaging ourselves. To me, that's a, that's a sad and yet strong commentary on this text. These that are saying, do whatever you want, literally end up destroying themselves. Folks, when you jump into absolute freedom, when you jump into godless morality, its God-given purpose is lost, and you as the offender are destroyed. Okay, and folks, I'm going to say something. We live in an age when everybody's very hot on the topics of gender. Hey, we're going to flame, flame, flame. I'm not arguing that point, okay? 
But we live in a context where things like pornography are tolerated in individuals' lives. And what is it doing? It's savaging lives. And so be careful that you are not picking and choosing, but that you are across the board committed to God's moral boundaries because you understand that they were given to protect your heart and to preserve your soul. Because when you say, you know what, standards don't matter, it doesn't matter what movie I watch, it doesn't matter what music I listen to, do not be deceived. Because what you're taking in can savage your soul. And the only person you can blame for that destruction is yourself. Okay, so this text, it's heavy, but that's important truth for us to understand. There are people, verse 10, that live by instinct. And when I live by instinct, when I do what I want impulsively, it is always devastating to everybody around me and to my own soul. And I think the text from Galatians 6 comes to mind. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you will reap. If you sow absolute freedom, you'll live in a world where there are no boundaries. And you will savage your soul. May God help us to follow all of his truth. All right, the sex, so, the, so the, the, the first thought is this. Don't reject God's authority. The second observation from 11 and following is because rejection of God's authority has consequences. Okay, that's already been alluded to in the first three examples, right? Israel rebelled, God judged, right? And, and so on and so forth with the angels. And you, you, you see that, that's a pattern. But it's not the main point of the first part. It's to acknowledge that there are people within the context of church life that are savaging themselves and everyone around them by their freedom. Okay, but the second part says this. We must not reject God's authority because the rejection of God's authority has consequences. Verse 11 is fascinating. It starts with a woe to them. This Greek word's interesting because it kind of has the same kind of a sound. It's like, oh. it's a pronouncement of, of future judgment, of doom, of, 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 of fear that is present here. Woe to them. And then he's going to give you three more Old Testament illustrations. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. So what's, what's the theme? The theme is that there were people in the Old Testament who were known for their cold-hearted, hate-filled rebellion, and God dealt with them. And I think this is a message for the church. As you live in the context of this world and experience injustice, you need to step back, not take revenge, leave room for God to act. Okay, that's a lesson we need to learn. Don't punch back. Leave that in God's hands. But he gives these three illustrations of how rejection of God's authority brings consequences. So he gives three examples looking back. Cain is a man who simply thought of himself. He ignores God's correction and God's offer of grace, the second chance, and in anger kills. How does he end his life? Well, if you read the rest of the account, you're going to see that he built a city. He had a family. He had everything, but God, everything he wanted, he got, but he was godless. In his anger, he reacted. Secondly, Balaam. Balaam is a prophet of God 
who leads others astray by encouraging sexual sin for personal benefit. So King Balak says, Balaam, come. Balaam says, no, I can't. I can only say what God says. Another time, he goes, right? He gets called again, and he's becoming enticed because what is he doing? He's tolerating these entreaties from Balak, who's promising him money and resources. And as you read through the rest of the Old Testament, you find out what was motivating Balak or Balaam, the prophet of God, who left God and experienced a judgment for that. He taught how to seduce the people of God. And he did it for personal gain. He saw a way to advantage himself as he distorted God's truth. Jesus said, it'd be better if a millstone was tied around your neck than that you would cause any of these to stumble. And Balaam went down that treacherous road just to get a little more. Folks, I'm going to tell you something. In all of the compromise that you entertain, you're seeking something for yourself. Otherwise, you would never do it. You're seeking a benefit, but you bring yourself under the wrath and judgment of God. And then he talks about Korah. At the end of verse 9, they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. What was the story of Korah? I'm just going to give you this very simply. Moses and Aaron were called by God to be the political leader and the spiritual leader. And one day Korah just, he, he's a man who is so full of himself. He's a man who's contemplated the, the, the level of authority that God has given to Moses. And it is, it is eating him up. And he's letting it destroy him from inside. He wants what God has given to someone else. And finally he comes out and he rebels. And, and if you remember the story, God separates Moses and, and, and his leaders and Korah and, their, and his leaders. And there is an immediate definitive judgment of God as the ground opens up and swallows those that were opposing God. It's a, it is a sobering account. All three of these are. So what do you see? On three occasions in the Old Testament, there are many, many others. These are three of the most well-known. What happens? There's a rejection of God's authority that leads to the consequences of God's judgment. Every one of these men was dissatisfied with their place, sought more for themselves, and rebelled to get it. And they experienced the divine justice of God. Now watch what he does now. So he gives us three illustrations. Then he's going to move back into the context of the church. Look at verse 12. These people, all right, so they, 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 they mimic the activities of these three Old Testament characters. And he's going to give you what they're like. Where, this, where has this rejection of God's authority taken them? What how did we properly assess them? And why should we be so cautious and concerned about them? Watch what he says. Verse 12. And some of your translations are going to say these people are blemishes. Probably the better translation is they are hidden rocks or hidden reefs. Okay? And it's, it's a maritime illustration, more than likely, that that rock that is hidden can damage and destroy and cost lives. When it is hit, by an unsuspecting ship. That, that hidden rock poses an unseen danger for the church. And here's what I think is very interesting. When you go back into, into verse 4, what does it say? They've slipped in. The idea is that they're posers, right? They've come into the church acting like something that they're not. And because they are posing, when their true self is exposed, it will bring destruction. But they slip in. They come in clandestinely 
unseen and wreak havoc on the church of Christ. So they're like hidden rocks. They look faithful at communion. It's very interesting. These people are blemishes at your love feast, eating without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. Very likely that the church had what in our day we would call kind of a potluck dinner, which I'm not sure really what that means, because sometimes it feels unlucky, right? But it's, 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 a, it's a meal followed by a communion celebration. What was the purpose of the meal? If you understand the New Testament, you know that meals at the table were table fellowship. It was sharing of life together, culminating in a celebration of the Lord's Supper, where we would profess the faith once given to the saints, where we would proclaim and contend for the faith once given to the saints. And he says, these people's present there is a sham. They don't love God. They don't value the work of Christ. They value themselves. And for that reason, they're like a hidden rock. The, the vessel of the church is moving forward, and all of a sudden, it impales itself on a danger. That's how he describes these people. Secondly, he calls them selfish shepherds. That one's very easy. They're there for themselves. All they care about is what they get out of their task. The accolades, the credit, the praise, whatever it is, they're, they're here for themselves. Now watch what he says next. They are clouds without rain. Now if you're familiar with the Middle East where these books are written, you know that clouds were a crucial source of rain and they came very infrequently. So for clouds to cover the land of Israel, there would be this sense of hope that the rain that's desperately needed for crops to survive and for our lives to succeed, that rain is critical. And what does he say? These false leaders, these false teachers that distort and promote uh, lasciviousness and looseness morally are like clouds without rain. They tell you that in your freedom you'll find satisfaction, but in your freedom and in your excess you will find devastation. They're clouds that provide no benefit they are fruitless trees in autumn. This is fascinating. If you go to an orchard this time of year where we live, uh, autumn is a time when apples are in abundance, right? And some of you love going out and picking apples, and some of you even enjoy eating them, okay? So what, what, what's he saying? There are tree, fruit trees in autumn that have no fruit. People go to them seeing all the signs of life, but it's a sham. It's a facade. There's nothing there, nothing that benefits, nothing that sustains, when someone tells you that you can do whatever you want, you can find joy, they're liars. And it's interesting that this text says that they are autumn trees without fruit, uprooted, twice dead. Twice dead meaning what? They bear no fruit that sustains life, and then they are torn down. It is impossible to read this text and not remember the words of Christ about the nation of Israel, where these people had infiltrated and distorted the truth about Christ. And there was a judgment that came on them in the story of the olive trees on two occasions. Okay? They are, these last two are interesting. They are wild waves. And all, all I can tell you is this. If you say to yourself, what is the benefit of wild waves? Right? Anybody got an answer? There really is no benefit. There's a big show, but it's useless. Okay? And I think that's the idea. They, Isaiah 57 says the wicked are like the troubled sea. 
and I see no way in which somebody reading this text who's literate in the Old Testament would not see the connection. The wicked are like the troubled sea. It foams. The only thing it can make is bubbles. There's no substance there. And Judah's very, very direct here. He says that's what they're like. And the last thing he says, a fascinating statement. They are wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. I want you to think about that real quick. What were stars used for in ancient times? For direction. You remember the story of, uh, of the wise men, right? They saw the star in the east and they navigated to that place. In, in, in the maritime culture of that day, stars were fixed points of reference that helped you to get to your destination and that often would simply preserve lives. What is he saying about these people? They're wandering stars. They never nail down on truth. They never say, thus saith the Lord, because they want to strip that away so they can do whatever they want. They're wandering stars. It's fascinating. They almost become like the shooting stars that have a flash and wander off into darkness. And there becomes here, or there is here, I think, a very uh, strong picture of judgment. Because what's happening? The people in the church are like, yeah, yeah, we see that. Will God ever act? Will God ever respond? And just like the angels that are kept for the day of judgment, in this case, he, he now makes it personal. He says, for whom the darkest blackness has been reserved forever. Right, that's sobering. Folks, I believe without a doubt that's a picture of hell itself. And what is hell at the end of the day? Hell at the end of the day is to be without God forever. One writer put it this way. He said, in hell you get what you always wanted, life without God. And I believe along with all the other pictures, that is one of the most horrifying realities. Because isn't that the story of Cain? He fought against God. He got everything he wanted, but he was godless. What a tragedy that is. Well, 14 through 16 is the close. It is the call for the church that here's, here, here, here's, here's the call of God. Don't reject my authority. When people reject my authority, there will be certain consequences. And to the church, he says in verse 14, be patient because a divine assessment is coming. Folks, how do you live in an unjust world? How does it not eat you up? Okay, and I, I got friends in my life, I got family members in my life that are all torn up about what's happening in their world. And I think they think I don't know, so they feel that they need to repeat it to me on a regular basis. Okay? And this text is for them and me. Okay, it's a reminder to all of us because sometimes we, we get sucked into that thinking. We're hanging out with people who have that thinking. Everything's so bad. It's never been. That's historically ignorant. Okay? Forgive me for saying it that way, but if you think it's never been hard before, that there's never been deep brokenness before, you're just unaware. Okay? Is it poignant now? I think the answer is yes. Okay, and I would not in any way disregard that. But there's a message that we need to remember in the midst of this 
season. When things are hard, when the struggle is real, when there's a lot of division and brokenness. Verse 14 says this, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. Okay, and I want you to see this. All right, these people, these people, Enoch prophesied about them. When was Enoch? Enoch was seventh generation from Adam. And he talked about them. (laughs) They were present in his day. And he promised that the judgment of God would come and it did with the flood. And Jude takes his message that yes, they were present in my day. And Jude applies it to the leaders in the church who are pulling people astray. And everybody's like, does God see this? Is he aware? And there's this sense of panic. Everything's, the wheels are going to fall off. It's all going to fall apart. Where's God? Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about these people. Okay? He says, see the Lord is coming. This is a quote from extra biblical literature around the time of Moses. Okay, so you you have these writings that were present along with scriptures that are not authoritative and inspired, but they contain certain truths. This is a truth that Enoch picks up and declares. See the Lord is coming. And listen to this, folks. See the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones. Now, if you get out your calculator, you misunderstand this text. So what is a thousand times a thousand? It's not the point. The point is that God is coming, and is coming, and its purpose to bring justice is irresistible. It is an overwhelming sense of his presence. This same terminology is used in the book of Revelation, isn't it? Thousands upon thousands. It's simply to say that when God comes, he is not effectively resisted. And this text is saying he is not successfully ignored, even though he is blasphemed, even though he is in our day slandered, even though his moral absolutes are trashed, he is coming. Okay? And, and when he comes, he's coming with thousands upon thousands. No. No, just, wow. Wow. And that's from Enoch, who hasn't seen all of the world history that you and I have seen that has caused people to cry out, Psalm 73, I believe it is, Lord, how long? How long? And God says, be faithful. Be faithful. Be faithful. God sees it. He's got it. Rest in this as you contend, as you get weary, as you get tired. Remember this promise. Enoch saw it already in motion. And and what, what is stunning about this text is verse 15. It says, he is coming to judge how many? Everyone. And to convict, what's it say? All. Folks, God doesn't miss anything. That hurt in your life that no one knows about, that you have never verbalized, that haunts you, God knows. And he is coming. And he will bring everything and everyone to light. What is Peter, what is Jude doing? I think Jude is giving the church a strategy. 
for faithfulness. Don't get overburdened with the brokenness around you. Contend for the truth because God's promises and God's word cannot be destroyed by the struggle that you are facing. So how do we respond? We wait for the reluctant yet necessary response of God to human rebellion. We trust that God will be just, that he will come, and that everything will be seen as it should be. No one, the judge will not be brought, he will not be bribed. He will bring truth. He'll answer all questions. And he'll bring justice. So what do I do in the meantime? Say, okay, PT, thank you. Don't rebel against God. Rebellion against God brings consequences. God has it. He's aware. He's moving. What do we do? I think we go back to the text that Doug talked about last week. We earnestly contend for the faith. We stand our ground. I'm not asking you to go out and protest. I'm just asking you to be faithful to God. Don't sacrifice. Don't compromise truth. Don't compromise moral absolutes. Stand for what's right. And don't compromise to retain your job or to get people's temporary applause. Why contend for the truth? And how do you do it? You know how you contend for truth? You speak it. You preach it. You proclaim it. You share it. You don't have to defend it. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, he said, Timothy, preach the word. Right? That's how you stand. That's how you contend. That's how you fight the good fight. Let God's truth out. You don't have to defend it. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, God's truth is like a lion. Whoever heard of a lion, he asked, just turn it loose and it will defend itself. Folks, what we need to do is just stand on God's truth. Live God's truth. And by living it, we are proclaiming it. Let people see it in your life. Don't get ugly. Be humble. Do it with tears. So that people know you're a real person, not a robot spitting out what you've heard. But that it is truth that touches your heart. Church, be discerning. Be careful what you listen to. Test everything and cling to what is good. Listen to teachers that are tethered to biblical truth, even when it is complicated like this text. This sermon to prepare was a battle, okay? It was hard to get the flow and the understanding, okay? But it's important, and it's true, and it's truth to live by. Strategy, remember that God is not mocked. Don't panic, because God is patient. Man, is that hard. Aren't you glad God was patient with you? Aren't you glad God did not give you what you deserve? Okay? So if he extends to someone like Cain, hey Cain, what you've done is wrong. Your motivation was evil. But if you do the right thing, there's hope for you. Folks, that's the message we share. Remember, God is not mocked. That's my strategy. That's our strategy. Don't panic because God is patient. He is not successfully ignored. And injustice is not the end of the story. God is in control and has made clear promises to and for his people. And I love that one of them comes from the book of Enoch. I just, I love it. Seven generations from Adam, a promise that God is coming with myriads of angels. And he will set everything right. 
My last thought is just real simple. If today you hear his voice, God's patience with you is opportunity. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, Pastor Tim, if you knew my life, you know that I deserve the wrath of God. Can I tell you something this morning? We all deserve the wrath of God, every one of us. But because of his love, God sent his son into the world, the man Christ Jesus, who always lived under God's law, but died in your place and brought forgiveness for you. And if you've never trusted him, I want to encourage you this morning to realize that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son who stood on the cross and bore the wrath of God that you deserve. So what did I say? Don't rebel. Rebellion has consequences. Guess what Jesus did? He stood in the place of rebels on the cross to bear the wrath of God that you deserve so that you could be forgiven and set free. And your neighbor says, yeah, but if God knew everything about him. And God would say, no, forgive him because of Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and there are things in your life that no one knows. Here's a secret for you. God knows. You don't have secrets. You think you do, but you don't have secrets. And the God who knows you fully sent his son to die for you, to bear the wrath of God for you fully so that you can be forgiven and set free. Don't hide in your sin. If today you hear his voice, cry out. Cry out. And ask for his forgiveness. Would you stand with me as we pray? And then we're going to go into our closing song this morning. A song that is meant to comfort and to encourage us. Ultimately by appealing to the cross work of Jesus. Jesus, thank you that we can say, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. God, help us to realize that we as Christians have a standing with you that is unmerited, that is undeserved, that is unearned. It is a gift of your grace that changes us. So Lord, I pray that you will help us to face the seasons of struggle with hope that one day you are coming and because of the work of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven and we are free. Bless your word to our hearts, Lord. If someone is here this morning, I pray that maybe during this closing song, they may come up and say, Pastor Tim, Pastor Doug, Pastor James, I need to trust Christ. God exposed my heart today. He exposed the ugliness of my sinfulness, and I realized that in Christ, there's hope. I want to know Christ. God, do that work in our hearts today, and encourage your church as we sing this song, Lord, that because of Christ, even though we may be in the midst of a storm, It is well with my soul.
Father, we come before you this morning. We are so thankful that we serve a God that is all-powerful, who makes a way where there is no way. Father, it's only because of you that we can stand here and say that it is well with our soul, as we have seen so many in our congregation and in our world suffering. 
we know that you are still making something good and mighty and beautiful out of <laughs> Father, we just lay our hearts before you this morning in praise and adoration and thankfulness to you. And we just ask that you would remind us of the good that you have done thus far and that you will continue to carry us when it is hard. That that is where you are the most clear is in the hardest hours, Father. We just praise you. We love you, Father. And we thank you for using us and taking our sin away and giving us your son so that we can spend the rest of eternity with you in your precious mighty and unstoppable name i pray amen <laughs>